Hi, welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm Russ Hayworth, and I'm a family business advisor, as well as the host of this show. In each episode, you'll find informative and engaging conversations with experts from around the world, covering a range of topics relevant to family businesses and family offices. The show is supported by Family Business UK, the largest organization in the UK dedicated solely to supporting, representing, and championing family business. To find out more about their work and how to become a member, visit their website, familybusinessuk.org. Right, let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. I am delighted to be joined by not one but two guests on this week's show. I'm really excited to bring you this conversation. I am joined by Dave Getz and Melissa Parks. I will let Dave and Melissa introduce themselves in just a second, but firstly, welcome you both to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us, Russ. Thank you, Russ. Uh, Thanks for the opportunity. We are going to be talking about what you need to know before you start telling your family story. And I'm really intrigued to get into some of the detail on this. But before we do so, um, Melissa, if you could kick us off and introduce yourself, um, how you came to be doing what you're doing today. Um, Perhaps I haven't said to anyone yet how you and Dave know each other. So perhaps if you just cover that off and then Dave, if you can follow Melissa. Yes, thanks again, Russ, for having us. My name is Melissa, and I am the co-founder of Journey 66, and we are a coaching and writing publishing um, company, and I have known Dave for about, gosh, probably 25 years. He, We worked together at a publishing company when I first moved to the Chicagoland area, and I really found my writing legs with Dave. Um, as my editor at the publishing company. And then he began a marketing agency and I followed him there to that. And we continued to do just tons of content marketing, tons of publishing, because that's where our background was. So we created Journey 66 as a way to to tell stories and help people tell their stories through coaching, um, through ghostwriting, through video production, and also through our hybrid publisher. The best thing that ever happened to me uh, outside of getting married, having four kids, was meeting Melissa like 25 years ago, as we said, at the publishing company. And it's been just a great joy working with her. And so um, at the publishing company, I was a writer and editor. That's how I got hired. That was my first major career uh, job. And, and I worked for a publication called Leadership Journal. And, and I got to work with leaders in the nonprofit space, but also people like Peter Drucker. I worked on a book project with Peter Drucker and some of the, you know, the thought leaders at that time. And so in 2000, I made the decision to start a a marketing agency with an emphasis on publishing, on the publishing side. And so through the years, that has just been one of the great uh, joys of the work we do. But as Melissa said, marketing is just, it's just hard to explain the publishing piece. Like you're going to publish a book, are you going to do a documentary video? People understand marketing videos or branding videos, but documentary is something different. So we spun out Journey 66 about three or four years ago. And it's just been just so much joy to work on these projects and actually help families tell their story. There's just a, I don't know how to say it, but uh, there's just a great joy when you see a family do that. And, and there's just a sense of great satisfaction that they feel. 
Yeah, and you mentioned some of the um, work that you do with uh, authors, and we have a, a mutual connection on that front. And I've been uh, very lucky to to know you and, and sort of be in your presence a few times um, over recent years with the work um, that myself and Jamie Weiner have done on the quest for legitimacy. And um, I'm a, a strong advocate for the support you provided uh, during that process as well. So um, I may be biased, but uh, a big fan uh, of you guys um, over here in, in the UK. So we are going to be looking at what you need to know before you start telling the family story. And before we get into that, I think it would be really interesting to just explore some of the various reasons that either individuals within families or families themselves have that desire to tell their family stories. So what are some of the reasons that you see uh, in the work that you do? So I think it goes back to the most elemental reason of being passing on a legacy. And I know that's a word that's thrown around a lot, but we've worked with individuals who have wanted to share their 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 history and important parts of their lives. And we've worked with families who want to tell the family story. And it really has to do with the helping the next generation understand those elemental moments in a person's life or a family's life that have shaped them. Because the further away you get from those stories and the further away you get from the generation that founded the family business or um, shaped the family, the further you get from those ideals and those values that have made the family that it is today. And so there's this urgency that people have, I think, to capture the family stories before um, the elders, um, the, the previous generation pass away, and those stories are watered down or lost altogether. So I really think it has to do with passing on values in a meaningful way and really getting at the why behind those values. That's what stories do is they give the why, not just the values, which are, um, you know, you see them on mission boards and in rooms or in family offices, boardrooms, but they don't really get at why you believe that way. And those stories are so elemental to that. I think stories also create family culture. And I heard some cynic the other day talk about the difference between, you know, the first generation that made the money and the second or third generation that uh, hears those stories at the home in Aspen and how it just doesn't resonate the same. And, and I do think that that is a challenge. And, um, and I think the work of families to organize and tell their stories, there's, there's not just one story, right? But what makes it so powerful is that when you have a family who has succeeded over time, and we're working right now with a family that's 120 years old. In fact, they started the business in 1907 when the Cubs won the World Series. It's a Chicago-based uh, firm. And they have sustained, not just sustained the business, but really grown the business amid wrenching, wrenching change. You can imagine uh, in the home heating and HVAC, uh, actually the, um, uh, the product, they've become a master distributor. But there's just this wrenching change, and they're going now, I think, into the fourth or fifth generation of leadership. And so they just want to make sure that they tell the stories about what was at stake through that century uh, of being in business. And it's important to do that because you want those values to persist into the next generation. So um, I do think the storytelling is really is really key to that. 
Yeah, and I, I really like the point you make around storytelling being a way to demonstrate the behaviours that kind of show the values that the families um, have. Because as you say, Melissa, the, the kind of values board on a mission statement can capture the right words. But if there's not a real understanding of the behaviours that go into creating those words and those values, it can be open to interpretation. And so the use of storytelling is a way of, rather than a value set necessarily being I don't know, uh, an aspirational set of values to, to strive towards. You can utilize the storytelling to go, this is what we mean by this value and this is what we mean by that value. Um, and it seems that it's a, a more effective way of capturing that essence whilst also um, being c- quite a useful historical record as well for, for multiple generations. Would that be fair? Yeah, and I would add to that, we're deep in this project with a family right now. We're doing a video and a book, and one of their values is treating people generously. And they have that up on their mission statement board in their boardroom. But then you go back all the way to 1907 when they began, actually the 1930s, the founder during the Depression gave all this grace to customers who couldn't pay their bills. He was absolutely generous. And the customers paid him back. There was this huge trust and believing in the relationship that he had with the customers, that the customer would repay um, the company. And they all did, but he wasn't so um, stingy that he demanded the payment when they really couldn't pay, when they had to get food on the table. So I think that's a great example of how you don't understand why um, the company holds fast to being generous, but as soon as you get that story, you're like, ah, I get it. And how then it's played out from generation to generation. The related story was uh, in the 1950s, their entire shop burned down and they had a major fire. A major fire lost their entire fleet uh, of trucks. And it's so moving. It's hard to talk about this for me without even without being emotional, but their competitors came in and met the needs of their customers during the time it took for them to stand their fleet back up and get back on their feet. And that just speaks to this tremendous set of values about how they treated people. And it's so powerful and it is so important. And, you know, as someone on the outside, just being involved in the research and script writing and and Melissa's actually been leading this project but it's just it's so moving and it's so inspirational yeah absolutely that's a, a great example and you we touched in in there on some of the sort of benefits and reasons why capturing um, a family story is in, important and I'm keen to understand again, from the experience and the families that you work with, how important it is that the family themselves and the individuals involved have identified the, their reason for capturing their story rather than going, oh, well, other families have done it for this reason, therefore we can do that. I find that with some of the work that I do around governance is they go, well, we've heard that a family's got a family charter, should we have one? And it's much more around the purpose and identifying what it means to them as an individual family. Is that equally important in something like why you're capturing the family story and in particular, who who you're capturing it for? 
Absolutely. And I would say part of that is because it's a huge investment of resources, both time and finances, to tell your family story. And so if you're doing it just to go through the motions, I think that you're going to regret um, investing in it. If you don't know your why, you really have to know your why in order to sustain the time and the energy and the people time that you're going to be drawing from to get that story out into the world. And so, yeah, you have to, you have to know your why in order to, to move forward. Otherwise you're just doing something and you're not going to have buy-in from your family, from your team. So yeah, I think it's important to know your why. Dave, what would you add to that? I would say that every family is very, very unique. For example, uh, our office is with a single family office here in the Chicagoland area. And the family made their money in asset management. And uh, the original, uh, the person who made the money, he's now 90 or 91. And there's really not a dramatic story about how this uh, person made his money. He was just, it was kind of the right place at the right time. He was a great leader, no doubt. There's, you can't say that, but the, the company went public and, and now they have a foundation. The second generation has, um, has taken a lot of those assets and, and, and done very well with them, but they also have a foundation now. So the story, to be honest with you, for them, the story isn't how they, you know, had 120 years of, you know, going through death and fire and tragedy and economic downtime. They just, they, they hit it. And so the story for them is really about the second generation and their generosity in terms of the foundation. And they have all these stories. So every family will have to identify what story they want to tell because you have multiple stories. It's not just a history, but I do think every family is unique. Yeah, that's a really valid point as well around the different types of family stories that exist because if you've got a, a multi-generational family um, where you, you know, you've got many, many different people who are looking at things from many different perspectives, how do you go about helping them to decide what type of family story to capture and, and what are the benefits of, of each of those? Well, I think that there are, as you said, different types of stories to be captured. There's the founder story, um, and we've done a, a story like that. We've it's really a memoir. It was a memoir, and it was really about um, a gentleman who was um, an Orthodox Jew, and he started a, a business in the oil company, and then it was sold, and he went on to work with that. Um, that oil company, which was actually owned by a German um, man. And so the, the tension in the story was, how do you maintain your Orthodox Judaism while um, living in a world that isn't that? And how do you live out um, the values? And it really focused in on how he um, managed that throughout his entire life. So there's that founder story, and it's very personal. Um, and it was written really for his grandchildren who are getting further and further away from orthodoxy. And he wants them to hold on to that because it's core to, to who he is and who his family was before him. And so that was the founder story. Now, there's also the family story at large, which is... Um, more of a collection of stories told from multiple points of view, like the one that we're working on currently. And 
that goes from generation to generation to generation. And you get all these different stories from the different generations to, to show these themes that have transcended through the family story. And I think when it is all boiled down, really, each story has to have a have a through line is what we like to call it. You have to have um, a driving principle, a driving idea, or a thesis, like we like to call it in the book world. And when you have that thesis or that driving idea, um, then you know what stories go in and what stories go out. So for this family business story, um, the through line is that they have sustained all this change because they, one, anticipated change. Um, they worked hard. That was one of their um, primary values. And they treated people generously. And that's how they have made it to this fourth, fifth generation. So it's a little bit different, but I would say that you have to know your why for each and then select um, kind of a theme that drives every story um, and then select stories that that fit that because you can't put everything into a book. It can't be a, a biography. <laughs> it, it would be a very boring read. So that is, that really is a good point, Melissa. I do think the founder story is an easier project. Nothing's easy. <laughs> um, for example, the Melissa, the one that uh, Melissa discussed, uh, the Orthodox Jew, he, so it was a memoir, so you don't write about everything. In a memoir, it's a memory, right? And it's very selective, the stories that you tell. But as Melissa said, even in a memoir, it's written like a novel. There's a narrative arc and and you you make choices about, what to include, what not to include. Once you get beyond the founder story, when you start going into multi-generational uh, uh, families where you have second, third, fourth, um, all of a sudden that is complex because that must be a team effort. So if all you're doing is telling the history, that's kind of one, it's not that, in, I mean, it's interesting, but there's no, there was nothing at stake in there, right? It's just kind of this happened in 1844 and then they moved here. And and that is important. That is a very, very important piece, but it's not really a story. So, uh, so you, back to your original question, which is what would you do? I think there's always a leader who feels really passionate about this in the family. And, and if you don't have that, you really can't begin to work on this project. It doesn't mean that this person will be doing all the work in terms of uh, the writing and or working with the publisher, whoever they, it's not that, but this person has to, this is a big project. And so, but it's a team project once you get the family involved, because making the decisions about what stories go in, what don't, families get very protective of that and, and how to tell the story, whose voice the story should be in? Is it a limited third person view where you have a writer who's more like a journalist kind of reporting on the story? Or is it more dramatic where it's like what they call the omniscient third person where uh, you have a, a, a someone, a narrator who's narrating the story, but it has drama and that person gets inside the heads of, let's say, the founder 150 years ago, which of course you wouldn't know since uh, but that's a legitimate way to write those kinds of stories. So it just gets more complex, but you do need a leader, someone who's passionate about it, and it needs to be someone who can bring and build consensus uh, with the family about uh, what theme to identify, what's at stake, and then also uh, what stories to, to select. And presumably that's something that you are able to 
sort of help guide families or individuals within families through as they approach they don't need to if they're looking for support with this they don't need to make all of those decisions from the outset or is it beneficial to at least considered all of these elements before embarking on a, a project yeah i'll just step in yeah absolutely so that that really is kind of is kind of a pre-project right and i think um this this is a little bit different so i'm but i'm going to give you an application here that's slightly different um, so we're working with and have worked with uh, a foundation that is the result of a family-owned business that was a, in the family for about 30 or 40 years. And then it didn't get sold, but they created an ESOP. So half of the business is an ESOP, about 55, 60% of the businesses is ESOP. So, but one of the things they've done is they've really built a great culture. And the family is no longer uh, running the business. And I think they probably have a minority stake now. But they have this, this foundation. And this foundation and what they've done is it's really about how they've created this culture at this company. And it's a, an amazing culture. I mean, it, it, it just, uh, I don't know how to, how to explain it. But here's the issue. So who gets to write the book to tell the story of that culture because it's a really really engaging story so whose voice is it is it the current ceo right and they just switched ceos and the former ceo is now chairman of the foundation or is it the president of the foundation who's also the senior vice president of of talent and human resources he's probably number two or three in the organization now who actually shaped the whole way they do culture now is so interesting. It's, it's just a fascinating story. So who gets to tell that story? So back to your question, some of these things have to be negotiated up front, not negotiated, that's that's a bad word, but have to be discussed up front and agreed. And here's the issue. It's very difficult to have, if you're going to do a book, now that we're going to talk about this in a little bit, there's a ton of different formats, a book of which is just one of many, and we'll talk about that. But but who's going to be the voice? You can't have a chorus of people writing a book. That would be fundamentally uninteresting, right? So typically you have one person writing a book. It might be, let's say, Dave Getz with Melissa Parks. Occasionally you can do Dave Getz and Melissa Parks, but generally those are hard books to write because then you're dealing with voice. So the point is, yes, on the front end of a project, there needs to be some agreement about uh, voice, who gets to tell the story and the process to decide what goes in and what doesn't go in the book. I would also add to that. Um, just you are only as good as your brainstorming and your ability to get ideas out in the open. And I think that it would be important um, to have somebody there to ask really good questions, not just about the purpose, but um, the stories that are are going to be told and to ask deeper questions about those stories to get at the, the underlying principles and the why that we were discussing earlier. So I think often it's important to have an outsider um, part of that conversation simply because they will draw out of you those things that you don't know need to be drawn out of you. So I would look for somebody who asks great questions, is curious, and also probably has a sense of, of storytelling and identifying themes and how those things connect together. So I think an outside voice would be hugely valuable 
on that front end as you're beginning to figure out what do we really want to tell the story? Do we even have a story to tell that we can that we could package in a book or in another um, mode? So yes, mm-hmm. get somebody else involved if you feel like you're stuck or you're not quite sure. Yeah, and we will move on to to look at the different formats that can be used. There's a you've used the terminology a couple of times around voice and i'm just keen to to dig in a little bit deeper on that to to um to really understand what you mean by voice when you're you're writing um or recording a, a family's story so c- can you just uh, i know dave you, you you gave us um a couple of examples there of, of the types of voice but what do you actually mean by voice and why is that so important to um how the family story is told I think when you're doing a memoir or a founder story, that has to be in first person. And I would say that first person allows for um, a closeness and an immediacy that you don't get the further up the further away from first person you get. So Dave mentioned third person limited, where it's a reporter, right? You're taking all these interviews that you've done with family members, and then you're reporting back what those stories stories are. Suddenly, the emotion isn't as immediate. A good writer will be able to write in that emotion, but it's not as easy to create that immediacy. So I would say that when you're a founder writing a memoir, of course you're going to write it in first person. That is the the, the thing to do. Um, I think then as you go to that, um, that cumulative voice, right, where you have multiple generations, multiple, multiple voices, it gets really tricky. And so you have to, I think, decide who's going to be the, deci- the voice of all those, of all the all the voices, quite simply, how who's going to tell the story? Whose voice is it going to be in? Even if it's a third person limited narrator, it, that has to have a voice as well that's consistent from story to story. Or you could consider doing what we're doing right now with this project, and it, you have the individual stories told first person from multiple individuals. So that's one way around it to keep it first person from multiple individuals. Dave, what would you add to that? No, I, I, in fact, I I would love to expand just on what you just said, because in this project, well, we've got multiple projects, but one of the projects we're working on, it's both a video, a documentary about a 12 to 15 minute documentary and a book. Now, not a traditional book, right? But because you can only fit so many stories in a 12-minute documentary, and you don't want that to be a 100-minute documentary, right? To make it really interesting and make it something that is engaging, it does have to have a through line or a narrative arc. And and so what we did is we added this book project, which is, it's a quasi-table book, but it has it's it's driven by image and story and so there's little short essays or short stories that are written in the first person from say like a vendor who had a perspective on his relationship with the ceo or um, an employee who was amazed when he started the business and he was there and the ceo was making him coffee right? Little things like that. So they are really powerful stories. So that is also a a voice, right? Or it's part of like a package of how you might uh, package up. And we'll talk about the different formats here. It might package up your story. So that's first person. 
But back to, I just want to talk a little bit about the third person limited view. So that would be someone we talk about like a reporter, but it doesn't mean it has to be cold. So that person could interject editorial comments and warmth throughout, let's say this person is writing a book, right? Um, or, or putting together a video script that it could be from the perspective of someone who is not really emotionally connected and it's just, it is more repertorial, right? More of a, but, but, but the, the, like, for example, the video clips would be really warm because they would be in first person of the actual interview. So there's different ways to do it, but voice really has to do it. Is it first person? Is it second person? Which is really not usually an issue or is it a, some version of the third person voice? And then who gets to, who gets to be that voice? Ultimately, voice comes back to tone as well. And so this is part of that, that pre-phase that your, your team will want to go through. And it's what tone do you want this project to have, whether it's a video, um, a collection of stories, a memoir, a biography, whatever it is. You have to decide, is it going to be serious? Is it going to be emotional? Is it going to be business sounding, right? There are all these different tones that a project can take and that influences the voice of the writer and how the how the writer writes that book. So that's a, something else for you to consider as you're thinking about this family story is what's the tone that the voice, um, the writer or the producer is going to take to tell that, tell that story. Or is it a hagiography, right? Which is a, you know, that's it, just a, a fancy term that means the writing of the saints, right? So e either the book or the video, whatever, is it is it all about trumpeting how great we are and how much success we've had? That's probably not what we're talking about here. Um, that is inherently uninteresting. It doesn't mean that you don't tell of your successes, but if that's the through line, of, you know, it's kind of chest pounding. Maybe that's a branding video, right? But it's it's really not a family story. And the other related thing to this would be uh, the decision about what goes in and what goes out. A family story isn't salacious, but we know that with families and human beings, salacious things happen. <laughs> I can, you know, on my side of the family, I know that. But you would you would not want that. Uh, as part of the story. Now, let me give you an example, and I'll let Melissa step in again. But we did this this uh, uh, founder story in which it was a book, actually, that, that this founder wanted to give to the next generation to tell the story. In chapter five, he revealed that he had an affair with his wife's, uh, was it first cousin, Melissa? Yeah, first cousin. So this was, as you can imagine, this was chaos. It created yeah. chaos. It created brokenness. Some families might, or some founders might not want that in there, right? But he felt like because of the brokenness that it created in the family and it caused, uh, you know, it just, it was a hard, it was a hardship for his two young children who uh, he moved away with this woman into a different country. And there's just a lot of sadness in there, but he wanted to do that. And so part of his why was to be honest with his kids and tell that piece of the story. So it just, and every family is going to be different. I think also just to jump on that, the, the why was also to, to point to you can make mistakes, but it's how you handle the mistakes that reveal your character. And so for him, that was the lesson. And he couldn't just tell his his children, his grandchildren, the next generation that he could, I guess, but it wouldn't be as powerful as of him 
as him actually telling the story and then sharing how he dealt with it. And I think actually owning up to it in this book is one way that he is dealing with it and showing that you own your mistakes and you move past them and you apologize for them, which was part of what that chapter was about. Uh, again, I think that uh, great examples. And what I'm um, getting already from the conversation we've had is that, that the thought and um, preparation of, of going into this um, is essential in terms of really understanding what the process and, and what the output's likely to, to look like. And as you've mentioned a couple of times, there's there's different formats and different ways to be capturing a family story. And I know a lot of people will think that the, the best way is probably through a book, um, but there are other formats. Perhaps we can explore some of that uh, a little bit now. Is is the book the best way? Are there there are other methods? Um, Dave, you've also mentioned combinations of, of methods. And is there kind of a, a best uh, option? Or again, does that depend on what the family are looking to achieve? I'll jump in by saying that I think at the most basic level, and this could be an exploratory level, is for your family to create a basic website where individuals write family stories and it's shared with with the family. And that would be a very basic way to begin to see what those stories are. And in the process of doing that, you begin to think, oh, maybe there is a larger project at hand. So I think you can start as basic as that, just setting up a family website with a blogging capability and invite your family members to start sharing those stories. And they don't have to be great writers, but it's just an opportunity for you to begin to get those stories written down. And that is low commitment, right? You're not thinking about the financial component of publishing a book or publishing a video. You're just simply getting a website started and inviting people to participate. And then from there, you can, if you have a lot of energy around it, you can begin to think, oh, maybe there is something larger here. Related to that would be, um, who, who is this, quote, deliverable for? whatever it is. And that's definitely related to format. So for example, uh, I have a friend who is the founder of uh, an organization that uh, uh, he, that it builds community among ultra high net worth families who um, are committed to, to generosity and giving. So it's not just a, a cluster of people get together um, but they're actually talking about, you know, strategic ways to give. So he's now in his seventies, but he's been a writer, went to Harvard and has written prolifically through the years. He's also crazily enough, been a Sunday school teacher. <laughs> and so what he did for his family was create the website. It's really a form of a digital library and every one of his Sunday school lessons is on there. Every one of his, um, his blogs is on there. Every one of his articles is on there. His, I think he has written two or three books. So um, there may be even the digital version of the books on there. It's just, it's a, um, it's a, it's a, it's a place. It's a centered place where people, his family can go. Now, yes, it's open to the public. Google can, it does index it, but he's wanted that central place for his, his daughters and who are now uh, in their forties and fifties. So, that would be a format. So I, I like that, Melissa, you know, starting out with maybe something um, that is not so onerous as trying to write a book. 
I would add to that also that there's this chaos in family records. <laughs> this family we're working with now, they have boxes of all these records and clippings from the newspaper and magazine articles, and they're all with different people and they're not consolidated like Dave was saying. So there is also value of creating sort of an archive, like Dave mentioned, where you bring together all these files and have people begin um, collecting those things and putting it in a centralized location so that in the future, when you begin to do these projects, especially with video, you'll need those images and, um, and, articles for B-roll footage, but they're all in a place where you can easily access them. And what we found also is that those images, those stories in the newspaper and magazines, they prompt um, individuals to think back on that moment of time and it prompts stories that they have possibly forgotten. And that is a great way to collect more stories. So I love this idea of centralizing all of your archived materials and just to begin writing. So that's one very basic idea of a place to start. But then from there, you can, we already talked a lot about the book, but you might think, let's do a video, let's do a 10 to 12 minute documentary. And as Dave mentioned already, this isn't a 30-minute documentary that would be on TV, right? It, it's brief because you want to capture people's attention and maintain it and have them even wanting more, right? That's a that's a sign of a great of a great story. So you can't put everything in a 10 to 12-minute video. It really focuses on those those moments where things were at stake and those moments that really shaped the family, as we've been discussing so much. Um, you'd have to really find a partner to help you with that video production. There's so many great production companies out there that I think you could do some research, ask, ask um, other businesses what, what, who they've worked with. But a, a video is a legitimate way to tell the story. And that really just demands interviews, right? So it would be an interview format and you prepare people in advance. So you, you know, the questions that you want to ask to get the right stories and they're prepared to tell those stories succinctly, but it's a, it's a great way to tell a family story. So if you were just to list the, the, you know, different formats, we talked about the, the digital library, which is kind of, it can be started as an archive and a center, but it also can be packaged up through video and story and really not branded, but really, in a sense, branded for the family. So there's the there's that. There's also the traditional book, which you know it's a 250 page uh, book, uh, like the one that uh, Jamie Weiner wrote with um, the the quest for legitimacy. Uh, we work with Jamie on that project, and that's one part memoir, right? I mean, it's for families, but it's one part memoir. So there's the traditional 250 page book. There's also the long form video that, um, which is long form meaning longer than, you know, a minute and a half. So the 10 to 15 minute video, there's the short form. You could have a sh just a series of videos, um, short form videos. Um, there's letters. So um, there's, uh, I know someone out in Colorado who helps families write letters, which I just thought was a wonderful idea. That's a form of storytelling. There's audio where, you interview, um, you know, the living people that are living and, and interview for, for something specific. And, and, um, and also, uh, the other format is through images, right? So you could do a book of, of images, more of a coffee table book. So this family that we're working with currently, one of the families we're working with currently 
has so many great images from, you know, from 1920s and 1930s. In fact, it's really hard to select because there's so many good ones. Great black and white. There's one great image where uh, the founder is on a buckboard with, what is it, four mules? And I think he's delivering either hay or ice up and down the streets of Chicago. I mean, it's just an awesome, awesome image. So those are the different uh, types of formats. Fantastic. And you you touched on something else there that brings another question to mind for me in terms of pictures or images or newspaper clippings, magazines, et cetera, bringing back people's memories of stories. And I'm imagining when you're working with a family trying to collect stories and capture them, that you get different levels of recollection and different um, versions almost of, of the same events and same things happening. So, so how do you then go about pulling that into a structure? And, uh, and where do you guys start in terms of developing and, and telling a family story? Are there sort of best practices that your families can follow to, to help avoid, you know, just a, a confusion of the, the recollection of one story 15 times? If you're doing a video, then the script must drive the narrative, right? So, um, for example, um, uh, just this this family office here where we work, they hired a videographer to just interview some of the founders of the foundation, which are not the family founder. Well, they're they're second generation, but it's just a series, not just because it sounds like I'm, and it, it, it's a series of videos of people talking about, hey, um, you know, director of the foundation, why don't you talk about this? Talk about your values and who you serve, and that's a legitimate. Um, type of deliverable. But what happens is that it's kind of whatever the person says. It's not, there's no strategy involved. There's no thought in terms of the questions or the how the questions fit into the whole. So if you want to do a documentary, you, the script drives the narrative. And so you have to do a ton of research with your uh, family members before you interview them. So there has to be a pre-interview before you do the actual video shoot because you want to make sure that you're, because you're absolutely right, Russ, that the memories are all over the map. And that's what's so delightful about it, right? <laughs> and um, and also when you interview them the first time and then you interview them the second time, sometimes they'll almost deny what they said the first time, not like they were against it, but they, they give you such different detail that you wonder, huh, so it's it's a it's a really wonderful process, but I do think if you if you want to do something substantive, either a longer book, memoir, a video that is more documentary, you have to come up with a script, and a script drives the narrative. It doesn't mean it doesn't change as you as you develop the process, but the script must drive the narrative. As far as a book goes, it goes back to I think having that prevailing I- idea that's driving the book. You have to start there. Yeah. So with the documentary, you start with the script, which also is governed by a big idea. But with a book, you have to have that big idea, so you know what to include and what not to include. And um, 
and you can almost, you also with the book want to have some sort of a narrative arc, right? Either within individual chapters or as a whole. So you're moving the, the reader from a place of uncertainty um, to where there are things at stake, then to resolution and then a denouement, right? So there's a sense that a book has to engage the reader and show the tension, create tension throughout and then resolve it. That's what a good good story does, or most good stories resolve it. Some of the best stories don't. But um, And so part of the job of your team will be to identify the stories that raise tension. And, you know, now if there are two perspectives on the story, I think you need that's where voice comes in. And you have to have a discerning voice, a, a leader who says, you know, I can take a piece from this story and a piece from this story, and they don't conflict, but they really actually synthesize and complement each other and lead to a richer story. So for instance, um, Dave mentioned the um, the family who's business burned down in the 1950s. And there were there were two um, cousins who were were old enough to remember that in that that fire. And one of them remembers very distinctly going to the fire the night of the fire and seeing a ball of fire in the sky. The other cousin remembers the next morning um, hearing about it on WGN News and also, then he re he recalled one of the trucks blowing up through the roof, and so there's all this complementary material that together creates a rich story. So I think that that's the benefit. It's not that they um, conflict, but that they complement each other. And a good storyteller, whoever is taking the lead of telling that story, is going to be able to bring those stories together, and it will make for a richer story. And another. Um, nugget from the fire story is I was interviewing somebody and they said, yeah, in the, in the office, there was this great big vault and I never knew what was in that vault. I interviewed another person and they said the way that we were able to um, have our competitors serve our customers during that time was because that vault was protected during the fi fire and all the family records were kept in there. And most of the family had no idea. So as the storyteller, you get to put these pieces together that the family hasn't connected yet. And that's the real joy of storytelling. And when you have a gifted storyteller um, managing that for you. Yeah, fantastic. Great examples. And I, I'm intrigued as to some of the rules that might exist around the stories. I, I don't mean from the perspective of the kind of positive elements of it, but I imagine there are also families that um, they may not have some positive stories and there could be a motivation to uh, write a book that is containing the, the more negative side of things. Um, are there rules around what can and can't be shared and who needs to sign off what's um, kind of being created? I think if anybody is living and is being spoken of in the story, there needs to be a sign off from the person um, who the story is um, being told of. I also think that there needs to be a discerning person in the group who says this doesn't quite fit. So for instance, there was a story just recently that we collected of one of the founders um, cleaning the coffee mug with 
a toilet brush. And we thought it was a funny story that was told widely within the organization. And we ran it by um, one of the next gens. And they say, no, we don't want to include that because he wasn't aware that he was doing it. And so it would have been really derogatory to the, the founder to include that. So again, you need somebody who is vigilant at flagging stories that absolutely don't belong, that would paint somebody in a way that um, is really negative. And I think there's a certain threshold for each family of how much of the pain are you willing to share? How much how much of the mistakes are you willing to share? And you have to tell, I think, some of the mistakes to make the triumphs um, and the successes um, more poignant. But there's a point at which you really risk creating division in the family if you tell some of those stories that just aren't appropriate for a book. So you just need discernment. Dave, what would you add to that? I know you have some thoughts on this. Every story is a decision. I mean, let's just say a novel, um, the author makes decisions what goes in that book and what doesn't go in that book because of some through line back to that or narrative arc. So the story, um, every story has tension. Every story tends to have a hero. It has conflict. And so if your story has only, only heroic stories, it, it just isn't interesting. It's inherently interesting. But contrary to that, um, every family has, you know, has characters in the family who, um, you know, uh, that probably did things that, you, you know, um, that, that were, that the family isn't like proud of, or it's, it's so salacious that it's, you know, it's just hard to, it's hard to even talk about. So, that's not the purpose of family stories, right? So it's not that you don't, and it's not that you ignore the most salacious, but that typically even uh, the best, even the best novels, there needs to be enough good and enough hope and there needs to be something pulling that story along. And certainly that's true with family. So every family has has its own issues. And I just don't think that uh, you want to, yeah, I, I just don't think it's the job of Gen two or Gen three to come out tell some salacious story of the first gen, and I, that 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 to me then gets to motivation, and it's not really a family story; it becomes some sort of agenda. Not that I've ever seen that, but I just think um, that a story has tension. It has good stories. It has stories that where something was at stake, um, and that's what makes for for great storytelling and story writing. I would also mention, Russ, that you can hide identities through changing names, um, even ages, things like that. That would probably be more secondary players in the story, probably not primary family members. But if there's a story that you need to tell about maybe a competitor or an outsider, and you don't want to get their permission to include them in the story. You can simply change their identity from a male to a female or a female to a male, change, the, change where they lived, change their business name, change their age. So that's one way to protect um, people within the family story so you don't get dinged um it's just yeah. a best practice perfect and t typically i guess it, it, it could be a, a little bit like asking how long a piece of string is but how long do these sort of projects where you capture family stories 
typically take? But what should families be thinking of in terms of their time commitment to this type of project? I would say a good nine months to one year. And it could go beyond that depending on your decision-making process and how many voices you're going to seek input from and how much consensus you want as the leader of the project. But as we've mentioned already, it's so important to do that exploratory phase and also the preparatory phase so that you're identifying the through line to your story and you're identifying the best way to package that story. And then you go through that secondary phase where you're actually doing the research, the the dirty research where you're you're getting all the stories, you're looking at outside, outside sources to put flesh on the stories, and you're doing the hard work of writing or producing whatever um, whatever mode that you take. So, and then you have the publishing, the production, and the publishing end of it, which is a good two to three months. So, you have to be ready to invest in this project for a good nine to twelve months, and if if you're going to be putting the resources into this, the time and the money, then I, I would urge you to take your time and to, to not shortcut any of the phases so that you come out with a product that you're really happy with and that serves the next generation and the generations to come, because that's really why you're doing it, as we started out the conversation saying, is to help the next generation understand the meaning behind the values that the family holds fast to. I, I would say it's probably a, a year based on once once you've completed, once you've made some decisions about uh, the theme and through line and and all that. Once you once you like actually start the hardcore work of the project and all that pre uh, project uh, work has been done, it, it is a good year. When we work with uh, we work with we've just ghostwritten a lot of books through the years and. It's generally, if you can do one chapter a month, now this is for a traditional book, right? This isn't, there's just so many w ways to do books. And I just want to say that because there's just a lot of ways, like, for, you know, even with, let's say Jamie's book, we, you know, he wrote that book and that was a coaching process, not a, a ghostwriting process, but it took him about a good year to write that book once he had his thesis developed and he had structure for the book. It took it was it was roughly a chapter a month. So I do think if if you're thinking a traditional book, it's, if you're committed to writing, if you can complete one chapter a month, I think that that's a good that's a good way to think about it. But if it's more of a video, I think that twelve month to fifteen month um, is is a good window to think about as you as you work on the project. I love what you said, Melissa, is to slow down do it right. There's no rush. At least there might be a rush in making sure that you capture the stories of, let's say, a generation that's passing away. Right now, in my family, my father is 89 and he has a cousin, first cousin, Donnie, who's kind of the storyteller of my dad's generation. And he's about 85, but he's just not in good health. And I feel like I've waited too long to to sit with him and and it would be an it's a regret i have he's he's really at the end of his life yeah and i, I think what the whole of the conversation that we've had here has highlighted for me is the the value of capturing story when you have a, a clarity over the why of of what you're trying to do but also the 
depth of thought that needs to go into creating it. And it may be obvious that in terms of the the role that you do, but when do you need to bring in the kind of support that you offer and how do people go about um, finding the right support for them? Because I, I think it's really important in terms of ensuring that projects like this reach completion rather than it becoming something that can be very overwhelming and, uh, you know, be this, this huge thing that, you know, some people might take on on their own and go, God, this is, this is too much. What, at what point should they kind of look to, to find some support? That's a good question. I think with all families, um, trust is such an important thing. Um, it's something that is so important uh, as it relates to um, your wealth manager, um, your attorney who helps you with real estate. I mean, there's all these trusted advisors. So I think I, I do think families need a good referral. Um, generally, referrals are the way to find um, somebody that you trust that can that encourage you to complete the project. But I do think I would wait um, to um, to actually contact someone until, and it doesn't mean that the family doesn't need a, a pre-process to work through some things, but you know, if you're, if you're 95% sure this is a project you want to do, then at that point you would, you would begin to network and find, you know, and it, because at that point you'll have an idea of what the deliverable might be. Now it might change. So you might start out thinking that you want a documentary and then you say, no, what we really want is more of a digital library, a website where we can people can write their own stories. So that would be another piece. And so that would be a different trusted advisor, right, To uh, for that project. So you don't have to know for sure, but if it's a combination of digital uh, or, excuse me, video, long form video and book, that's a different, that's just a different uh, person. So I do think families are really good at finding trusted, families have trusted advisors. And I think that is just uh, the best way to find, um, you know, you don't need a Hollywood studio to do this, right? Um, but you need someone who has done it before, who's competent, and who actually understands the family system and understands just the process. As families are, they move slower. I'll just say that. That's different from, say, founders who are really, uh, that feel urgent to get something done. Maybe they're aging. That's different. But families, typically, it's it's just, it's more labyrinthian in terms of the process, which is important, and getting the right people on board. And so uh, you want somebody that can support that. I would just add to that, that people underestimate how difficult it is to write a book, write a script. <laughs> Some of these um, bigger end projects that you might be looking at as a family to deliver. If you aren't a professional writer or professional editor, or professional videographer, I think you'll find that you run into issues of um, actually telling a compelling story um, it, it just takes a lot of skill that you might not have. You have great skills in running the business, but if you aren't a trained storyteller, a trained writer, a trained um, videographer, then you may really struggle to to get that that project completed. And there are professionals out there who love to tell stories and have experience doing so. And um, that's what their sole dedication is. And there's a certain amount of accountability, I think, that that 
is at play when you hire somebody to do the work alongside you. Suddenly, you are try- trying to keep people on track to to be involved because you know that you've invested money in this. And so people are more willing to to show up for those interviews and to share those stories, share those those images and those clippings from the newspaper because they realize that this is an investment and you want to make the most of your investment. So there are some benefits. The accountability is a big piece as well. I'll just step in and say one more thing. I do think the relational thing is so important. Uh, which is why I use the phrase trusted advisor. You don't want a vendor doing this for you. Um, you want somebody who understands families and understands how how relationships within families work and is okay with that. And I think because that will create the right pace for the project and every pace will be different. Um, every family will have a different level of urgency uh, in terms of getting this done. So um I do. Th- I, I think ha- the phrase "trusted advisor" is such an important phrase for families, and I think it should be the same uh, with a project like this. Fantastic! And if people wanted to um, get in touch and have conversation with you about their own um, projects, how would they best go about doing that? They could jump to our website, journey66.com. Um, we have kind of a quirky name. It's Journey. And then 60 is written out with six as a numeral.com, although you can go to journey and then 66, the number and .com and find us. Uh, you go to, uh, you can email me, Dave and Melissa uh, at journey66.com or Melissa at journey66.com. And what that would look like if you contacted us would be just a, a Zoom conversation to hear what your hopes are for a project. It would just be an exploratory conversation. We would listen and ask questions about what you're trying to achieve and do a little consulting probably on that front end, but it would really just be a conversation to start. Yeah. And maybe several conversations. Sometimes there's the initial and just, you know, bringing in somebody else from the family uh, and exploring, you know, what it is that you might want to do in the future. Fantastic. And we will make sure we put links in the show notes um, for your website and email addresses. Um, Dave, Melissa, it's been a fantastic uh, conversation. Uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's a a topic that uh, I'm very interested in and and you've really helped uh, uncover um, the areas that families need to consider. So um, thank you very much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. Thank you for having us, Russ. It's been a delightful time. Very grateful. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you found this episode useful, please share it with friends and family. And it would be great if you could leave me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get found by others who are looking for help and support with owning or running their family business. If you are looking for support with a particular challenge, you can head to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ and find out more about how I may be able to help. Until next time, take care.